From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 181 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing just fine. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well, thank you. You know, we were talking before the show, you know, everything I said last week about how we were having an early spring, just forget. Just (laughs) forget about it. We're hunkering down, waiting for a huge storm to move in an atmospheric river. It is cold. Um, it's fallen below freezing the last two nights. So, um, anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. And we have a weather band that is like right on the border of Florida and Georgia that is keeping cold weather from coming into Florida. So we're seeing days where we're in the eighties and, oh wow. yeah, so, uh, we're, we're living in two different worlds right now. <laughs> <laughs> we are, we are. So, well, and you know, in prepping for this week's show, uh, you know, where there is, they created such a rich history for Donald Duck over these many decades. This was tough because, I mean, Donald has a lot of family and a lot of friends. First of all, I got rid of the friends finally, and then <laughs> we we stuck with the family, but. Then I just started had, having to pull people out of the family tree that I thought, okay, if you weren't really into the comics, you probably won't know this person. So I started pulling that way. So I thought, okay, if the people who really read the comics, they might know these people or play the video games or watch some of the TV series. But then there's the international comics. The international Donald Duck comics and Uncle Scrooge comics and all that are still wildly popular in some countries. And there's a whole history of these characters that sometimes contradicts what we're going to talk about in this episode. But I had to start cutting that out, too, (laughs) because it just it got nuts. And I thought we could only take so much. This could have easily (laughs) been a two-part episode. (laughs) It could have been. It could have been. But we are continuing our series on Walt Disney Studio Animation with an examination of Donald Duck. In episode 179, we explored his creation and development into one of the most popular of Disney characters. In episode 180, we discussed Donald's film and television career. And in this final episode about Donald, we are going to meet the Duck family. Now, most of the Duck family began as foils or bit players for Donald, but Carl Barks, I think I referred to him as Banks in one of the earlier episodes, um, populated Duckbird Duckburg, with a huge supporting cast of family, friends, and antagonists for Donald. So, Craig, did you read any of the Donald Duck comic strips or comic books growing up? 
I did not. My uh, my area of Pennsylvania didn't publish any of uh, any Disney comics in the papers, so I I didn't know that that um, Disney comics existed actually until I was a little bit older, and uh, even then I just I have never been a comic person. I I enjoy stories that have been adapted into movies and TV shows from comics, but I never, I never read them firsthand. I was, I was more into just straight book reading, like Goosebumps and Animorphs <laughs> and other random books that I probably rotted my brain with a little bit growing up. But yeah, I, uh, I, I need to catch up on more of the more of the comics in in the Disney realm. So I know there's a bunch of good. Uh, good compilations of of some of the character stories and such in it and i just need to find the time and dig in yeah well well yeah well take some time off if you want to <laughs> dig in sabbatical. yeah really <laughs> but uh no but they had the donald all the, all the mickey mouse and silly symphony and donald duck comic strips running in the papers when i was a boy in San Francisco. And I, I did like reading comic books, and I, I definitely read the uh, Disney comic books. And Disneyland, when I was a boy, also on Main Street, in that little arcade area, I think it's now, it's a toy shop on Main Street. And it's been different things over the years, but for a while it was a bookstore and it sold comic books. So a lot of times my parents, uh, when I was at Disneyland, they would pick me up Disney comic books there, mainly for the ride back to um, my relative's house in the San Fernando Valley. So I would read those in the car, uh, and um, and I'd read them, yeah, you know, just back and forth going to the park mm-hmm. when I was down there. So I read I read a lot of the comic books, but um, it's amazing though how much of even Donald's family was created in the later years. Like even in the eighties, and um, so uh, so there, it's a rich history. So the true lineage of Donald's family has taken decades to emerge. Uh, members of the Duck family appear mostly in the Donald Duck comic stories, although some have made animated appearances. Um, in the early nineteen fifties, Carl Barks was in his second decade of creating comic book stories starring Donald Duck and his various relatives. He had personally created several of Donald's relatives with Scrooge McDuck and Gladstone Gander being the most notable amongst them. But the exact relation between them was still somewhat uncertain. So Barks decided to create a personal version of their family tree. To better define their relations, he added several previously unknown relatives. And Barks never intended to publish this family tree, as he'd created it for his own personal use. And when you go online, you'll find that you can find the original family trees. We're going to talk about other ones that were created, and they're out there. And then some people have been very artistic with them. And and made them into little works of art uh, of some of the basic members of Donald's family tree that are out there. So, hey, you might want to take a moment, Google them, and follow along <laughs> as I start going through this. So, according to the to Barks and the family tree he created, Donald Duck was born in 1920. And he is the son of Quackmore and Hortense Duck, and the most well-known member of the family. 
His girlfriend is Daisy Duck. He does not have any children of his own, but he is very close with his nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Now, in some stories, Donald is the triplet's legal guardian, such as in the 1942 film The New Spirit, in which Donald lists the boys as dependents on his income tax form. In 1993, Donald Duck Comics author Don Rosa published The Duck Family Tree, which established each character's relationships for purposes of his stories. Rosa even created a fictional timeline for when certain characters were born. The Duck family is also related to the Coot, Goose, and Gander families, as well as the Scottish clan McDuck. I hope you're all taking notes here. (laughs) Uh, Besides Donald, the best-known members of the Duck family are, of course, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, Donald's three nephews. One fateful day in 1938, Donald received a letter from his sister Della, who was called Dumbella, who informed or perhaps warned Donald of the imminent arrival of her three children in the 1938 film Donald's Nephews. She was first described as Donald's cousin, but was later referred to as Donald's twin sister. She was first mentioned in a 1937 Donald Duck Sunday strip on October 17, 1937, in which she writes a letter explaining to Donald that she is sending her sons to stay with him. She appears as a child in The Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck, in which she and Donald are wearing identical sailor suits. Whilst both she and Donald are linked to Scrooge McDuck in equal measure, Donald is always referred to as Scrooge's closest living relative, suggesting she has disappeared or died. In the Don Rosa comic, Super Snooper Strikes Again, Huey, Dewey, and Louie refer to themselves as orphaned, suggesting that their parents have died. In the story about Donald Duck's 80th birthday, we learned that Della was an astronaut and gave the nephews to Donald before a dangerous space expedition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. De- she was a, a woman ahead of her time there. Oh, uh, truly. <laughs> yeah. Della made her first animated appearance in DuckTales in 2017 with her son Dewey, discovering she was previously a companion of Scrooge and Donald in their adventures. Dewey and his brothers investigate the cause of her disappearance along with Webby Vanderquack and discover that Scrooge has gone to great lengths to conceal information about her. It is eventually revealed that shortly before the triplets hatched, Della stole the sphere of the Spear of Selene, a spacecraft constructed by Scrooge as a gift to give it an early test run. However, she was caught in a cosmic storm and lost in space, and Scrooge spent a large portion of his fortune looking for her, but was unsuccessful. Blaming Scrooge for her disappearance, Donald cut all ties with him and raised Della's children on his own. But Della is later shown to be alive, living on the moon in the remains of her crashed spacecraft, and unable to contact Earth. In Season 2, it's further revealed that she has a prosthetic left leg because of her injuries she sustained during the crash and survived off Gyrogearloose's oxy-chew gum, which provides air, water, and nutrients, and worked feverishly to get back to Earth. 
And then the episode, The Golden Spear, she succeeds in making it back to Duckburg. And in Nothing Can Stop Della Duck, she meets the boys for the first time. Although she causes some issues from her difficulty adjusting to her new lifestyle, Della eventually settles down and decides to be the best mother she can be. In the Christmas episode last Christmas, it is revealed that as children, Donald used to insult Della by calling her Dumbella, a reference to her name in Donald's Nephews. In the cartoon shorts, Donald's nephews could be diabolical, which was masked by their angelic faces. The hatched plots mostly targeted at Donald and frequently outwitted Donald, and they were guaranteed to raise his temper to the boiling point. They eventually grew and developed and proved to be loyal and affectionate nephews and companions for Donald. In the Karl Barks comics, they are treated as superchildren, full of wit and wisdom beyond their years and rescuing their uncle from catastrophes. The identity of Huey, Dewey, and Louie's father, though, is a bit of a mystery. The character does not appear in any stories, but he did partially appear in the 1993 Duck Family Tree drawn by Don Rosa. In this illustration, Rosa partially concealed the character's face with a bird. Whilst the first name was also hidden, his last name is revealed to be Duck. His face was fully shown in the unofficial Duck Family Tree by Mark Warden and first published in several fanzines which labeled him Question Mark Duck and showed him with a flat top haircut and human-like ears. So I don't know what was going on there. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, in Huey, Dewey, and Louie's first appearance in a 1937 Donald Duck Sunday strip, Della writes to Donald that the boys had placed a firecracker under their father's chair as a prank and that their father had been sent to the hospital. This was the reason why the boys first showed up at Donald's house. The father has not been mentioned again in the comics. In The Richest Duck in the World, when Scrooge mentions that the new family members he had had disappeared, the nephews respond, we know how that feels. Oh, I mean, just leaving out the, the father, at least it it adds one less person into uh, Donald's family tree, in a way. I mean, it's still there, just uh, it's slightly slightly less complicated and an easier backstory to keep up now. Yeah, well, maybe the nephews wouldn't have come into Donald's life if the mystery father that is still true. alive. Oh man, yeah. that's uh, the wow, wow! This episode's getting deep. <laughs> <laughs> Donald's cousin Feathery Duck was created for the Disney Studio program by Dick Kinney and Al Hubbard, and was first used in the story "The Health Nut," published on August second, nineteen sixty-four. Kitty and Hubbard created Feathery to be a beatnik member of the Duck family. Now, the definition of that term, a person who rejects or avoids conventional behavior, is an apt description of Feathery. Feathery is an obsessive New Age thinker, eagerly trying to pursue various new hobbies and lifestyles based on books he has read or TV programs he has seen. Feathery is also quite a blunderer, however, so his new hobbies tend to cause chaos for his friends and family. In The Health Nut, Feathery is first seen running from the airport to Donald's house, implying he is not a duckbird citizen at that point in time. It is also implied that Donald and Feathery know each other from earlier. Feathery calls Donald by a nickname, Don. 
Elsewhere in the story, Donald thinks to himself, wonder what Feathery's kick is this time, making it clear that he knows about Feathery's tendency to come up with temporary obsessions every now and then. Feathery wears a stocking cap for reasons revealed in The Health Nut. He was convinced by a self-help book author that one's head is healthier when it's kept hot. Feathery's trademark sweater, usually bearing a black stripe, is typically a different color depending on which country the story is published. In Brazil, his sweater is generally yellow. In the Italian comics, he wears a red one. And in the comics of Egmont Publishing, the traditional color of his sweater is pink. The early Feathery comics were created for the Disney Studio program for publication outside of the United States. The first comic story with Feathery published in the United States was Donald's Buzzin' Cousin, which, like the health nut, shows Feathery as a non-resident of Duckburg, coming to meet Donald after a long time away, though the plot is otherwise very different. Later, some of Feathery's studio program stories were reprinted in the Wonderful World of Disney Giveaway magazine, published in 1969 and 1970 for Gulf Oil. I remember when, when you'd go to the filling station and they would give away comics and things like that. Wow. Mm-hmm. I that not when I'd go to fill up with gas. Yeah, when <laughs> I was a boy, they did. Yeah, I, I. They were all kinds. I forget. It wasn't just Disney ones that they they produced. It, there, there are there were all kinds of character series yeah. that would do specialized comic strips yeah, like that. That's my first or comic new, books. New lesson of the day. Yeah. From the 1970s to the 1990s, Feathery mostly appeared in European and Brazilian produced stories. In Brazil, he even had his own comic book title during the 1980s, which lasted 56 issues. More recently, since 2003, Feathery's modern Egmont and 1960s Kinney Hubbard stories have been published in domestic American comics, Uncle Scrooge and Walt Disney's comics and stories. According to a version of Don Rosa's Duck Family Tree, Feathery is the son of Eider Duck and Lulu Bell Loon. He is the cousin of Donald Duck and has a brother named Abner Duck. However, since Feathery was not created by Carl Barks and was never used in any Barks stories, Rosa does not consider Feathery a part of the Duck family. But due to editorial pressure stemming from the character's popularity in Europe, Rosa reluctantly included him in the family tree. In 2018, Feathery made his first animated appearance in a DuckTales episode, The Depths of Cousin Feathery. He is depicted as the caretaker of one of Scrooge's undersea research facilities that Huey and Dewey visit. Whilst they are there, at, whilst they are there, they are first put off by his odd behavior, but the two come to respect Feathery after he protects them from a sea monster. He later returns in Moonvasion to help protect the Earth from the invading Moonlanders. Now, Whitewater Duck was created by Carl Barks and used by him in only one story, Log Jockey, published by Walt Disney Comics and Stories, number 267 in December 1962. According to that story, he is a distant cousin of Donald and Huey, Dewey, and Louie, and works as a lumberjack in the woods. Don Rose's Duck Family Tree states that Whitewater's real name is Abner, and Whitewater is a nickname. 
He is also shown to be a son of Eider Duck and Lula Balloon and Feathery Duck's brother, making him Donald's first cousin. In the second appearance in Smarter Than the Tuffies in 2004 by Lars Jensen and Daniel Branca, Whitewater is the nephew of Scrooge McDuck's cousin Douglas, making him Donald's second cousin. Uh, those of you taking notes, I sure hope you must have lines going everywhere at this point. In this third appearance in Too Many Donalds in 2012 by Lars Jensen and Carlos Mota, Whitewater is in a relationship with Donna Duck. In this story, Donald introduces Whitewater to Daisy as his distant cousin. Dudley D. Duck is a cousin of Donald who appears in a comic story, Why All the Krabby Ducks? by Vic Lockman and Mike Ahrens. He is a failed architect and inventor who is responsible for the construction of the jog tunnel, which annoys the citizens of Duckburg because it really has a jog in it, and for the bad planning of Duckburg streets. Therefore, Dudley has become very unpopular and was forced to live isolated in a lonely street and was forgotten until Donald discovers who planned the jog tunnel. And then his girlfriend, Daisy Duck, reveals who is Dudley Duck through the newspaper where she works as a reporter. A reporter rival of Daisy ends up discovering that Donald is re- that Dudley is related to Donald, who also becomes unpopular. Now, Dimwitty Duck, originally just called Dimwitty, is a duck who is introduced in the comic story The Vanishing Bannister, where he appears as an assistant of Donald Duck, who in turn appears working as a private detective. Daisy Duck has a brief appearance in the beginning of this one. But there are some old American stories with Dimwitty and Daisy where Donald does not appear. In the story on Disappearing Island, Dimwitty appeared for the first time as Moby Duck's ship hand, and from then on he became the most common supporting character in Moby stories. Dimwitty is incredibly clumsy, but he is loyal and subservient, and maybe that's the reason why Moby keeps him as a ship hand. But a close kinship between them could also explain this fact. Dimwitty is taller than Donald and Moby. In some 1970s stories, Dimwitty is shown as a friend of Gus Goose. More on Gus later. Moby Duck, whose name is a spoof of the novel Moby Dick, was created by Vic Lockman and illustrator Toby Strobel, uh, Tony Strobel in the comic book story A Whale of an Adventure in Donald Duck number 112 in March 1967. He made his only major animated appearance in the Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color episode, Pacifically Peaking, on October 6, 1968. And he had a cameo appearance in the episode House of Crime on the House of Mouse TV series. He first appeared in Donald Duck number 112, where he is seen saving Donald from drowning at sea after Donald was forced to accept Moby's proposal to work as his helper. Since Moby's porpoise, Porpy, pretended to be a threatening shark. Donald was Moby's first mate for a while, but he was replaced by Dimwitty Duck, and on rare occasions in the comic books by Goofy. There are a couple of stories featuring Moby where Donald and Dimwitty appeared together, working for Moby as his crew. Now, Moby has a quick temper, but he can be really rude sometimes, not showing any remorse when he acts this way. 
And Moby is a disaster as a whaler, but a good sailor in general. He makes a living out of carrying cargo, especially for Scrooge McDuck. He also fights pirates and other villains, including the Beagle Boys, Mad Madam Mim, Emile Eagle, the Big Bad Wolf, and Captain Hook. There is not any comic story where Moby was shown harpooning a whale. In the American comic story Whale Bait, first published in 1969, when Gyro Gearloos asks him why he is so gloomy, he exclaims, Whales are scarcer than hen's teeth lately, suggesting that he had successfully hunted whales in the past. But this same story also shows Moby developing affection for whales when he comes face-to-face with one of them for the first time and hesitates to use the harpoon of his whaler on that one, exclaiming, I I can't. I never got so cozy with whales before as to look into their big, tender pink eyes. In the Danish comic story Miraculous Bait, first published in 1972, Moby reveals to Gyro that he never could hunt any whale, and for this reason he is using his whaler to deliver letters. Now, the Coot family, typically called the Coot kin in stories, are the relatives of Grandma Duck, and along with Clan McDuck, make up the third major branch of Donald's family tree. The name Coot was used by several comic authors, including Carl Barks, but Don Rosa was the first to show their relationship to Donald. The members of the duck family are uh, the members of this family are depicted as white Pekin ducks like Donald, although real life Coots are typically black. Cornelius Coot lived from 1790 to 1880. That name might sound familiar to some of you because he founded Duckburg. And the real world, but since closed Mickey's Toontown Fair at the Magic Kingdom. He first appeared as a statue in Walt Disney Comics and Stories number 138 in the 1952 story Statuesque Spendthrifts by Carl Barks. His statue and legacy has later appeared in many other stories. Although Cornelius was a well-known figure to readers of the Disney comics, this character history was not told until Don Rosa began using the character in the late 1980s. His history is mainly based on Rosa's stories, especially His Majesty McDuck, first published in Uncle Scrooge Adventures number 14. So Cornelius Coote was born in 1790 as an American citizen. His ancestors had been in America for quite some time, and his roots are believed to reach to the colonization of Jamestown, Virginia in 1607 and the voyage of the Mayflower in 1620. But he is the first member of the Kutkin to gain prominence. His birthplace is unknown, but before reaching Duckburg, he was a wandering hunter. He apparently had traveled all the way from the east to the west coast, making his living by trading furs from the animals he killed. He arrived at Fort Drakeboro, a military, a British military base in Calasota in 1818. He was apparently only looking for some trading with the soldiers, but his life took some unexpected turns. During his stay, the fort was attacked by Spanish troops from neighboring California. Now, the fictional Calisota includes parts historically belonging to Northern California. The Ducks version of California only includes the historical Southern California. The small British garrison could not defend the fort and decided to retreat. 
to save face the commander made a deal with young Cornelius. The fort would pass into his possession, and if the Spanish managed to conquer it, he and his troops had nothing to do with the failure other than trusting an insane American to guard it. Cornelius agreed. After the escape of the British, he managed to frighten the Spanish away by making them believe the British reinforcements were approaching by popping some sweet corn. His statue depicts this. The abandoned fort was now Cornelius's, and he had big plans for it. So, Craig, did you know that's why the statue in Duckbird has Cornelius holding sweet corn? No, I I didn't. Actually, a lot of Cornelius' Cornelius's, that is a hard word to say that you have been doing such a good job at through all this. Uh, I didn't really know a lot about his story, so this has all been uh, this has all been a, a first for me again in, in learning more about him. Yeah, there you go. Well, he renamed it Fort Duckburg and turned it into a trading camp for hunters. Soon enough, some of them began to settle down and start their own families. Cornelius started his own farm and started acting as the leader of the new settlement. Pretty soon, a village was flourishing in Duckburg. Calisota was annexed into the new independent state of Mexico in 1821, but Duckburg acted much as a city-state. It had its own laws, its own leaders, and thanks to Cornelius, its own defense force. Cornelius organized the citizens that could carry weapons into the Woodchuck Militia, a force that would guard the territory from any threat, including any conflicts with the Native Americans of the area. Cornelius turned the old fort into the militia's base. He personally supervised the repairs to the fort and had the ideas to build tunnels under the fort so that even during a siege, they could still move in and out of the fort. Besides the tunnel they made, they found an already existing tunnel built by Fenton Penworthy and his men in 1579 after the fort was built. Cornelius explored the tunnel. He found the body of the long-dead Fenton and gave him a proper burial. He also found the information on the guardians of the lost library. He found and kept the book written by Fenton and contained the secret knowledge of the guardians. He then appointed himself the next guardian, the first after Fenton. Cornelius had managed to pipe mountain water into the village. He was a capable leader and managed to improve his settlers' relationships with the Native Americans over time. And according to Gilles Maurice's non-canonical duck family tree, Cornelius married a Native American woman named, you're going to love this, Craig, Pluckahontas. Oh, jeez. No, I, <laughs> I actually don't like that. <laughs> I don't care about that at all. They had their only known son, Clinton Coote, in 1830. Through the rest of his life, Cornelius continued to act as Duckbird's unofficial leader. Even when Calisota and neighboring California were annexed to the United States in 1848, nothing really changed in Duckburg. When Cornelius died in 1880 at age 90, he was a very very respected family man. But over time, he's been honored by the citizens of Duckburg as the father of the city. A statue of Cornelius holding an ear of corn was present in Mickey's Toontown Fair in Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. And, of course, as we know, before 1996, the land was known as Mickey's Birthday Land and Mickey's Starland and was set in the city of Duckburg. 
Cornelius Coote made his first television appearance in a DuckTales episode, The Golden Armory of Cornelius Coote. The episode retells the story of Coote's founding of Duckburg, though the Spanish are replaced by beagles in the story. Huey, Dewey, and Louie explore the catacombs under Fort Duckburg in search of his treasure, discovering a series of giant popcorn makers that Coote used to imitate the sound of gunfire and scare the beagles into retreating. Now, Clinton Coote, who lived from 1830 to 1910, was first mentioned in Uncle Scrooge Adventures number 27 in the story Guardians of the Lost Library, first published in 1994. There he was introduced as the son of Cornelius Coote and founder of the Junior Woodchucks, inspired by the book given to him by his father. In The Life of Times of Scrooge McDuck, it is revealed that he is the father of Grandma Duck, In Don Rosa's Duck Family Tree, Clinton is married to Gertrude Gadwall, and their two children are Grandma Duck, whose name is Elvira Coote, and Casey Coote. And he is named after Bill Clinton, who was running for President of the United States when Don Rosa created the character. I had a feeling that might have been the case. Yeah, yeah. And Clinton made his animated debut in the 2018 TV show Legend of the Three Caballeros. Yeah. So, so you, so anything you can add to Clinton's uh, story here? Oh no, absolutely not. I mean, you've <laughs> covered everything and okay. more. But uh, it's yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, you're you've been very thorough in your research, Michael. I don't <laughs> okay. think we tell you that enough. <laughs> okay, well, well, I wasn't sure if the Legend of Three Caballeros added anything. To, to, no. to this story here. No, not in. I mean, it's been a year since I've watched it, but nothing is sticking out as memorable. But I do remember the character. Okay. Now, Gertrude Coote, who is, of course, uh, whose maiden name was Gadwell, is the wife of Clinton Coote and the mother of Casey and Elvira Coote, who's Grandma Duck. Like Lula Bell Loon, Gertrude has appeared only in Don Rosa's version of the Duck family tree. Now, Casey Coote who was born in 1860 until until 1960, first appeared in Last Sled to Dawson, first published in June 1988. He's introduced as an unsuccessful gold prospector and friend of Scrooge McDuck during his years in Klondike. In need of money he sold to the significantly more successful Scrooge McDuck, his share in Duckburg, Calisota, USA. His share included Killmule Hill, which, renamed to Kill Motor Hill, makes up the land where Scrooge's money bin is located. In Don Rosa's Duck Family Tree, he is featured as a grandson of Cornelius Coote, a son of Clinton Coote and Gertrude Godwell. He's married to Gretchen Grebe, and they had at least two children named Fanny and Cuthbert Coote, being the maternal grandfather of Fanny's son, Gus Goose. Now, Fanny Coote is the mother of Donald's cousin, Gus Goose, and she was first mentioned in the Donald Duck comic strip of May 9th, 1938 by Bob Carp and Al Taliaferro, where Gus first appeared. But Gus's mother's surname was not revealed in this comic strip, where she identifies herself in a letter to Donald as Aunt Fanny. So she was originally sister of one of Donald's parents. In John Rose's Duck Family Tree, she is featured as a daughter of Casey Coote and his wife Gretchen Grebe, and so a niece of Elvira Coote, Donald's paternal grandmother, and first cousin of Donald's father Quackmore Duck. 
It's possible to consider that Quackmore had a high regard for his cousin Fanny, and for this reason Donald was taught to treat her as aunt. Fanny also had a brother named Cuthbert Coote, and she married Luke the Goose, and then became the mother of Gus Goose. I hope you're following all this. <laughs> I'm reading it right along with you. I'm not following along with it, but I'm also well, laughing. It, like, if someone was playing a drinking game to this, if they needed to drink every time you heard goose or coot, then they are, like, three sheets to the wind plus some. So, not a good time maybe, to be drinking your scotch mist tonight. Maybe when, you, maybe when you post this, that's what you should put <laughs> on the internet. Is make this a drinking game. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll write that down for the blurb so I can remember it. Okay. okay. Um, now, Cuthbert Coote was introduced in the story Web-Footed Wrangler, first published in April 1945, as a distant cousin of Donald Duck and a rancher. In Don Rosa's Duck family tree, he is included as a member of the Coote kin, as son of Casey Coote and Gretchen Grebe. Now let's take a look at the Goose family. Luke Goose, sometimes called Luke the Goose, is the father of Donald's cousin Gus Goose. He was originally supposed to be Gladstone Gander's father, Daphne Duck's husband and Gus's uncle. But Carl Barks later changed his mind, making Gustaf Gander, who was originally Gladstone's adoptive father after Luke and Daphne, over eight at a free lunch picnic, Gladstone's biological father and Daphne's husband. And Luke the Goose disappeared from the tree. When Don Rosa created his duck family tree, he used Luke Goose, removing the from his name, and made him the husband of Fanny Coot and Gus Goose's father. Now, Gus Goose is Donald Duck's second cousin and the great-nephew of Grandma Duck. He appeared in only one Donald Duck cartoon short, but ate his way through several comic strips. He debuted on May 9th, 1938 in Al Taliaferro and Bob Carp's newspaper comic based on Donald, before making an animated appearance in a 1939 short, Donald's Cousin Gus, in which he posed a serious threat to Donald's domestic security. Uh, this is one of my favorite Donald Duck um, cartoon shorts. G Gus's main personality traits are laziness and gluttony, and Donald is driven to extreme lengths to defend his pantry. Gus wears a watch that displays only three times, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> My kind of watch. Yeah. <laughs> Needless to say, Donald never welcomed Gus back for a visit. Within Disney Comics, Gus is usually shown living as a farmhand on Grandma Duck's farm outside of Duckburg. Along with his gluttony, Gus is quite lazy, often doing little if any work on Grandma's farm. He also has a tendency of falling asleep at random occasions, sometimes even standing up. <laughs> on occasion, Gus has even shown signs of ingenuity as to finding methods or solutions to make his chores much easier for him, and at times even automating them so he does not have to work at all. Gus made no appearances in DuckTales, but there is a background character in the series, Vacation Van Honk, who bears a striking similarity to Gus. Gus appeared in the 2000s animated series Disney's House of Mouse as the club's gluttonous chef, speaking only in honks rather than words. He also made non-speaking cameo appearances in both Mickey's Christmas Carol and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So next time you watch those, keep an eye out for Gus. 
Yeah. I'm, I actually just looked him up just to double check that he's the character who I thought he was. And I, I almost want to go back and watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit right now to, <laughs> to spot it. Not, nothing against Mickey's Christmas Carol. It's just I'm, I'm over Christmas now. So. Oh, okay. For at least another month or so. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now let's take a look at the Gander family. Gustav Gander is Gladstone Gander's family. In some early stories, he is married to Matilda Duck, Scrooge's sister, and adopted Gladstone and his brother, and had a son, Oscar. Or, but Carl Barks later had him married to Daphne Duck instead. They are considered the parents of Gladstone Gander, although his wife and son's luck does not include him. Us Ganders have never sunk low enough to associate with you ducks, exclaimed Gladstone to Donald in Race to the South Seas by Carl Barks, suggesting that there is a mutual antipathy between his father's family and his mother's. In the same story, Gladstone exclaims, us ganders have never worked. What suggests that originally Gladstone's luck came from his father's side. Gladstone Ganders first appeared in the comics in 1948 by Carl Barks and possesses exceptional good luck. This is in contrast to his cousin Donald Duck, who is often characterized for having bad luck. Gladstone is also a rival of Donald for the affection of Daisy Duck and is Donald's true nemesis. He is arrogant, wavy-haired dandy, and a con man. Barks described Gladstone as a loafer, bum, chiseler, and connoisseur of the fast buck. He is obsessed with luck, just as Scrooge McDuck is obsessed with money. Gladstone scorns work and regards himself as Donald's intellectual superior. Donald resents him deeply. Okay, we'll move on to Clan McDuck. <laughs> we might as well. So yeah. I do. I do want to say though, I do like Gladstone. Um, he's one of my favorite comedians. Voices him in the new uh, Ducktales. So I, I do enjoy him quite a bit. Oh, good, good, good. <clears throat> All right. The Clan McDuck is the Scottish clan of ducks from which Disney character Scrooge McDuck is descended. Within the Donald Duck universe, the clan is related to the American duck family through the marriage of Hortense McDuck and Quackmore McDuck, Donald's parents. Clan McDuck was created by Carl Barks, who also created the character of Scrooge McDuck in a 1948 story, The Old Castle Secret, in which Scrooge and his nephew search for hidden treasure in McDuck Castle and introduced the backstory of the clan. Other authors built on Barks' works, most notably Don Rosa, in his 12-part comic saga, The Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck, that was published from 1992 through 94 which introduced Scrooge's immediate family. In the early 1950s, Carl Barks was in his second decade of creating comic book stories starring Donald Duck and his various relatives. He had personally created many of Donald's relatives, including cousin Gladstone Gander and Uncle Scrooge McDuck, although the specific relationships between them were still uncertain. To better define these relationships, Barks created a version of the mcduck Duck Coot family tree for his own personal benefit, <laughs> incidentally creating several additional characters. During his retirement, Barks' stories remained popular and gained him unexpected fame. So Barks gave several interviews during which he answered questions about his stories and the characters he had created. 
1981, Barks described his personal version of Donald's family tree, which was used by amateur artist Mark Warden in drawing the family tree and including portraits of the characters mentioned. Warden's tree was first published in several fanzines and later in the Disney-licensed Cara Barks Library, a 10-volume hardcover collection of Barks' stories in black and white. And some of our listeners... In listening to the first two episodes of the, our Donald Duck series here, told me that they're reading those right now. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they were in the middle of it and we happened to start this series or if they were, you know, um, motivated to start. But I have to look into that. Oh, I, you motivated them. Don't, <laughs> don't think anything else of it. <laughs> well. In 1987, Don Rosa started creating his own stories featuring Scrooge McDuck, and his stories contain numerous references to older stories by Barks, as well as several original ideas. After several years, he gained a fan base of his own. And in the early 1990s, the Egmont Group, the publishing house employing Rosa, offered him an ambitious assignment. He was to create the definitive version of Scrooge's biography and a family tree to accompany it. The project was intended to end decades of contradictions between the stories, which caused confusion to readers. And this project was to become the life and times of Scrooge McDuck. And the family tree accompanying it was first published in Norway on July 3rd, 1993. So, in the process of working on Scrooge's biography, Rosa studied Barks' old stories in detail. Rosa made notes of as many clues as he could of Scrooge's past given by Barks, which Rosa dubbed Barksian facts, and used them to write new stories. Rosa stressed in the introduction to the book, this version of Scrooge's life is not the official version. There's no particular reason why or anyone else should expect other duck writers to adhere to my vision of Scrooge's history. As carefully and authentically as I sought to construct it, it was never intended to be anything but my personal telling of the life of Scrooge McDuck. Well, you can imagine with that many... um, (laughs) <laughs> you know, the issues in there. Um, the McDuck clan has a lengthy lineage. We'll limit ourselves to Scrooge McDuck's parents. Fergus McDuck <laughs> was born in 1885 and lived to 1902. These ducks all had long lives. They did. <laughs> he, he, he is the second child of Dingus and Molly McDuck. And the father of Scrooge McDuck, and is a prominent character in the life and times of Scrooge McDuck. He was born in Glasgow in 1835 to Dingus McDuck and Molly Mallard, who were both working as coal miners at the time. He spent most of his life as a mill worker. According to a story by William Van Horn, Fergus at some point had a short marriage with an unidentified woman, with whom he had a son, Rumpus McFowl. He later married Downey O'Drake, his wife in Rosa's stories, who became the mother of his three children, Scrooge, Matilda, and Hortense. I just don't even understand. Like, how can you go from Dingus to Rumpus <laughs> to Downey, and then you have something basic like, oh, Molly, or <laughs> even know. Matilda, to, to an extent. Like, just, oh, these poor ducks. Uh. Well, clearly Molly was a down-to-earth woman. (laughs) Yeah, oh, clearly. (laughs) 
The rest of Fergus's biography is shown in the life and times of Scrooge McDuck. In 1877, he encouraged his son to work and have his own money. Scrooge's obvious intelligence, skill at hard work, and ambition made his father believe that Scrooge would be able to restore Clan McDuck to its former glory. In 1885, the clan's heredity lands would have been seized due to Fergus's inability to pay his taxes. But Scrooge spent his $10,000 in savings at the time to pay the taxes and become the new owner of their lands. Whilst Scrooge was away, Fergus and his family moved back to Castle Macduck, abandoned for centuries in dismal downs. The family continued to work to pay for the taxes, and Scrooge sent them most all the money he earned whilst traveling. Fergus became a widower in 1897. You always may have wondered, where did Scrooge earn all his money? Well, Scrooge became rich in the Klondike and returned to Scotland in 1902 as a billionaire. Scrooge's intention was originally to settle in Dismal Downs, but he quickly changed his mind and decided to settle in the United States. He wanted to take his family with him. His sisters accepted, but Fergus decided to stay, and he died during the night at the age of 72. Fergus appears in the classic 1987 DuckTales episode, Once Upon a Dime, which explores Scrooge's history. Here he is referred to as Papa. Fergus's name and image are also in the 2017 DuckTales series, which draws heavily from the comics. He later appears in the episode The Secrets of Castle McDuck, having survived to the present day due to Scrooge rebuilding Castle McDuck using magic stones that granted his parents immortality. Downey McDuck, whose maiden name is O'Drake, is of Irish origin and lived from 1840 through 1897. She is Scrooge McDuck's mother. Downey was created by Don Rosa and first appears in The Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck. She was a very devoted housewife and mother. She settled in Castle McDuck at Dismal Downs, Clan McDuck's old castle, along with her family in 1885. After her passing, she was buried in the McDuck Cemetery. She later appeared to her husband Fergus at his own passing, and together they joined various McDuck ancestors. Downey's image and name are also present in the 2017 incarnation of DuckTales, usually alongside those of her husband. Alongside Fergus, she makes a physical appearance in the episode The Secrets of Castle McDuck. Scrooge McDuck was born in 1867, according to Don Rosa. He is the first child of Fergus and Downey McDuck, and is the protagonist of most stories involving the clan McDuck. He does not marry and has no offspring of his own, although he does come to maintain close relationships with his nephew Donald Duck and his grandnephews Huey, Dewey, and Louie Duck. He was originally created by Barks as an antagonist for Donald Duck, first appearing in a 1947 four-color story, Christmas on Bear Mountain, number 178. Scrooge became one of the most popular characters in Disney comics and Barks' signature work, and became a major figure in the Donald Duck universe. Barks would later claim that he originally only intended to use Scrooge as a one-shot character, but then decided Scrooge and his fortune could prove useful for creating further stories. Barks continued to experiment with Scrooge's appearance and personality over the next four years, and in 1952 he was given his own comic book series called Uncle Scrooge. 
Named after Ebenezer Scrooge from the 1843 novella A Christmas Carol, Scrooge is an incredibly wealthy business magnate and self-proclaimed adventure capitalist whose dominant character traits are his wealth, frugality, and tendency to seek more wealth through adventure. Within the context of the Donald Duck universe, he is the world's richest person. He is portrayed as an oil tycoon, businessman, industrialist, and owner of the largest mining concerns and many factories to operate different activities. His money bin, and indeed Scrooge himself, are often used as humorous metonyms for great wealth in popular culture around the world. McDuck was initially characterized as a greedy miser and anti-hero, as Charles Dickens' original Scrooge was, but in later appearances, he has often been portrayed as a thrifty hero, hero, adventurer, and explorer. Now, Scrooge has appeared primarily in the comics, although he has appeared in animated cartoons, most extensively in the television series DuckTales and its reboot as the main protagonist of both series. So are you a fan of Scrooge McDuck, Craig? Oh, yeah. I love Scrooge McDuck. I don't know how... I, I don't know how you can dislike him. I know he's not maybe the, uh, the most patient character at times, but, like... He's he is that rich, lovable uncle that everyone which wishes that they actually had. So yeah, it's like it's Scrooge McDuck. If you told me you didn't like him, I I'd honestly have to question your your taste in <laughs> cartoon characters. <laughs> well, of course, we cannot forget the delightful and dotty Professor Ludwig von Drake. He was first introduced in 1961 as the presenter and singer of the Spectrum Song in the cartoon An Adventure in Color, part of the first episode of Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color on NBC. He was designed and frequently animated by Milt Call and Ward Kimball, two of Walt Disney's nine old men of animators. Said to be an uncle of Donald Duck, he is described as a scientist, lecturer, psychologist, and world traveler. The character displayed his expert knowledge on a variety of subjects in 18 episodes of the classic anthology series and on a number of Disneyland records and... Nancy Johnson, who's our Disneyland correspondent and my um, co-host, one of my co-hosts on the uh, on our old Disneyland um, show, she sent me yesterday several parcels arrived in the mail. The old book series, Disney's Wonderful World of Knowledge, I think they were published in the late 70s, early 80s, featuring are the good professor Ludwig von Drake in just about every book. Yeah, I think I'm going to have fun with these. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, it's it's Ludwig von Drake. How can you not? (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know how accurate the information is after all these decades, but, uh, but, you know, they're wonderful, wonderful items for my um, library. Yeah. Ludwig von Drake comes from Vienna, Austria, and has a fascination with knowledge. Since his youth, he has been trying to obtain as many diplomas in any science as possible. When he is consulted by other family members, it is a running gag that he almost invariably turns out to have a university degree relevant for whatever information they are seeking. 
He is often shown as having little social competence, however, and is often portrayed as being very forgetful, sometimes, you know, sort of bordering on senile. Yeah. In in the comics, Ludwig usually visits with Donald Duck and Donald's nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie. On occasion, Daisy Duck will coax or even trick the professor into giving lectures and tours for her ladies' club. Ludwig can play the piano and acoustic guitar, as shown in a few television specials and more. In the Wonderful World of Color episode, The Hunting Instinct, Walt Disney states Ludwig is Donald Duck's uncle, by way of being Donald's father's brother. According to Walt Disney, Donald decided to adopt his maternal surname Duck when he got into show business, and that is the reason why he is not popularly known as Donald Von Drake. In the comic strips by Bob Karp and Al Taliaferro, Donald's nephews usually call Ludwig Uncle Ludwig, and Daisy Duck refers to him as sort of an uncle of Donald's in the first Sunday comic strip where his name is mentioned. Von Drake has appeared on several Disney animated cartoon series, DuckTales, Raw Tunage, Bonkers, Mickey Mouse Works, Quack Pack, Disney's House of Mouse, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, Mickey Mouse, Mickey and the Roadster Racers, the 2017 reboot of DuckTales, and and in numerous television specials. In all of these, Von Drake wears a pink shirt, black tie, red vest, and a lab coat. The professor also hosted or co-hosted six volumes of Disney's sing-along video series. Now, you may be wondering who is the patriarch and matriarch who started this fine family. Well, Humperdinck Duck is the earliest known modern Duck family member. He is the husband of Avira Coote, known as Grandma Duck, and Donald's paternal grandfather. He worked as a farmer in Duckburg. He had three children, Quackmore, Daphne, and Eider. Humperdinck Duck had relevant comic experiences in two stories by Don Rosa, The Invader of Fort Duckburg, and a chapter in the saga The Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck, and The Sign of the Triple Distelfink. He was also known as Pa Duck and Grandpa Duck. Humperdinck's life before having a family was never shown in the comics. John Rosa speculated that the Duck family originated from England, but it is unknown if Humperdinck is an immigrant. In the story The Good Old Days by Tony Strobel, Grandpa Duck, an older Humperdinck, appears in flashback taking care of little Donald along with Grandma. He is portrayed as a dedicated but rigorous grandfather. Grandpa's real name was not revealed in his story, but in an untitled one from 1951, where an old lover of Grandma called Humperdinck has a cameo appearance. Don Rosa considered that this character became Donald's grandfather. In this same story, Grandma remembers an occasion where she and Humperdinck heard one of her favorite songs, and she says to herself, I remember the band played that for Humperdinck and me at the Fish Fedler's Picnic in 1905. Grandma also finds the ruined coat Humperdinck had used so she wouldn't step in a mud puddle and some romantic letters he wrote to her. Then she remembers some sweet names Humperdinck used to refer to her in those letters. 
Humperdinck appeared as Grandpa Duck in two comic stories, The Good Old Days by Strobel and The Sign of the Triple Distelfink by Rosa. But Strobel drew him with a quite long beard and some hair, whilst Rosa has drawn him with one short one and a full head of hair. Humperdinck appears unnamed in the 1955 film No Hunting, which in which he posthumously or posthumously inspires Donald to take part in hunting season. Humperdinck is also the father-in-law of Hortense McDuck, as well as the maternal great-grandfather of Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Now, Elvira Grandma Duck's maiden name, Coot, was born in 1855, according to Don Rosa, and is Donald's paternal grandmother. In most stories, she is simply referred to as Grandma Duck. She was introduced to the Disney comic universe by Al Taliaferro and Bob Carp in the Donald Duck newspaper comic strip, first in a picture on the wall in the August 11th, 1940 Sunday page, and then as a fully-fledged character in the strip of Monday, September 27th, 1943. Now, Taliaferro found inspiration for her in his own mother-in-law, Donnie M. Wheaton. Depending on the writer... Grandma Duck has had various given names over the years. In a story by Riley Thompson from 1950, she was named Elviry. And in a story from 1953, she was given the name Abigail. But Don Rosa later gave her the name Elvira in his comic book series, The Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck. In the comic strips by Talia Farrow and Carp, it is mentioned that in her youth, she was a pioneer in the American migration to the West, riding in a covered wagon and participating in many Indian wars. Later, she married Humperdinck Duck, and they had three children named Quackmore, Donald's father, Daphne, Gladstone's mother, and Eider, Feathery's father. But of course, I'm sure you all remembered that. Uh, Grandma Duck also helped to raise her great-grandchildren, Huey, Dewey, and Louie Duck. In most comic book stories, as well as other media that handles Donald Duck's childhood, it is Grandma Duck who takes on the role as his caretaker. Grandma Duck is very kind-hearted and humble, as well as having great respect for integrity and hard work. However, she is also very resolute and will not tolerate people who behave unfairly or otherwise badly. Therefore, she is one of the very few people who can stand up to Scrooge McDuck when he is being too greedy or thrifty or behaves unfairly to family members like Donald Duck. Her family is very important to her and probably what she values most in life. Grandma is also a great cook and has won many prizes for her pies and pastries. In many stories, especially in her earlier appearances, she is also very strict about cleanliness. In her first appearance, for example, she is very upset with Donald for not having washed his neck properly. Grandma Duck lives on a farm with many acres of land given to her by her father, Clinton Coote, outside the city of Duckburg. She is very strict and punctual on how to run the farm efficiently, like always getting up very early in the morning, to have time to do all the chores, which is an attitude not shared by her great-nephew and farmhand, Gus Goose. But Grandma is very patient with him and lets him stay on the farm anyway. In some stories, especially older ones, Grandma Duck also gets help from Gus and Jacques, the two mice from Cinderella. Grandma made her animated debut in a 1960 Wonderful World of Color episode, This Is Your Life, Donald Duck. 
The episode depicted her great difficulty in raising Donald, a strong-willed and ill-tempered duckling from the moment he was hatched. She also made a non-speaking cameo in Mickey's Christmas Carol and can be spotted in the background in the episode of DuckTales' Horse Sense. In The Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck by Don Rosa, it is told that her father is Clinton Coote, her mother is Gertrude Godwell, her grandfather is Cornelius Coote, and her brother is Casey Coote. In numerous European stories, she is shown as Scrooge McDuck's older sister. In some of the older American comics, they have also been portrayed as being cousins. According to the Duck family tree created by Carl Bark, Scrooge is the brother of Grandma's daughter-in-law. Well, you may think we have covered all of Donald's relatives, but you would be wrong. (laughs) Donald's family is extensive, with some of them appearing more exclusively in the international comics. So our goal with this episode was to show the rich history that has been created for Donald since his first appearance in The Wise Little Hen. And with his loving family, friends, and fans, Donald really is a lucky duck. Now we'll see if Craig lays an egg or has anything to crow about this week in Disney history. Well, Craig, and you know what, Craig? I I have slipped in at least one, one question based on this episode. Oh, yeah? So I will see if you are listening, if you are taking notes. I mean, I did not take notes since you already did a fantastic job of writing it all down for me. Uh, but let's see, let's see how my reading and listening comprehension is. Probably okay. bad. <laughs> well, this it was complicated. All right, January thirty first. An idea of Disney CEO's Michael Eisner for the first time on January thirty first, nineteen ninety two. Guests can have their photos taken as they ride a Disney theme park attraction. Which attraction is it, and at which park? Hmm. Ninety two. I'm gonna. Oh, okay. So my initial inkling, just thinking about the year 92, would have been Splash Mountain and Walt Disney World, but it wasn't open yet. It opened in 92, but not until later on. So um, I'm going to actually, that I'm going to stick with Splash Mountain, but I'm going to say Disneyland. You are correct. Professor Barnaby Owl's photographic art studio opened at the end of Splash Mountain at Disneyland. I remember what a big deal that was. Yeah, I mean, it's in look at it now. Walt Disney World alone has what fourteen, I think, photos on rides. Half of them that don't even need them. So yeah, I remember we went on that with our children. I still have the photo, and um, we've got a frame for it, the whole bit. So yeah, I have a lot of ride photos somewhere back at my parents' house that. I probably either need to throw away or or at least scan oh. in. <laughs> no, no, don't throw them away. Yeah, at least scan them. I, 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 yeah. Who needs memories, you know? <laughs> okay, February 1st. What popular Walt Disney World Magic Kingdom opening day attraction closed its doors on February 1st, 2003? 2003 opening day. So that's a long time. 
Um, hmm. Nothing, honestly, is ringing a bell for me. It was a show, if that helps. That does not help. No. The Diamond Horseshoe Review closed their saloon doors for good with the final performance. As one of the Magic Kingdom's original shows from 1971, the one-hour Western Saloon Review was performed up to ten times a day. The Diamond Horseshoe Review featured can-can dancers, singers, a live band, and even comedian Wally Bogue, who relocated from Disneyland to the Magic Kingdom for the first three years. It will be placed with that classic Goofy's Country Dancing Jamboree. Yeah, see, I, I, I think that's a problem with me is Diamond Horseshoe here. I just always think about it. You know, I, I know that what it was used for, but I do genuinely think about it just solely as a restaurant with no entertainment. And that's I know. It. That's so sad. Yeah. Okay, February 2nd. The comedy film by Walt Disney Studios... Well, the comedy... Oh, this. Oh, let me start all over again. This comedy film, produced by Walt Disney Productions and directed by Andrew V. McClaglin, released on February 2nd, 1967, would be singer and actor Maurice Chevalier's last appearance before a camera. What is the title of the film? Hmm. I feel... I feel like I know the answer to this, but it's not its not coming to me right now. Mm. Monkeys go home. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> no, I wouldn't have got it. <laughs> yeah, uh, of course, with Dean Jones, who learns he is the heir to a crumbling French olive farm, so he packs his bags and heads for Europe. On his arrival, kindly priest Father Sylvain, who's Maurice Chevalier, and maid Maria Yvette Mimou, is that how she say it? Convince him that getting the property up and running is going to take quite a bit of work. So feeling inspired, Hank decides to use four mischievous chimps as helping hands. Although he would contribute his voice to the animated The Aristocats, Monkeys Go Home would be Maurice Chevalier's last screen appearance. I need to track that one down. I definitely don't think it's on Disney+. Plus. Maybe no, I don't think so. I don't know. I have to. I remember seeing this when it came out. But I don't remember how did they get four chimps in France. So. <laughs> a good a good point. I, I do like yeah. Maurice uh, Chevalier though. I, I listen mm-hmm. to some of his like greatest hits a lot. I like I like living in the sunlight. It's a fun song. Yeah. Yeah. February third. This carti- cartoonist, known as the first artist of Donald Duck newspaper comics. Passed away in Glendale, California at age 63 on February 3rd, 1969. What is his name? Uh, I do remember... Um, oh, gosh. I'm, I'm going to get this. I might get this. I feel like this was all the way in the beginning of the episode. And that doesn't help anything. <laughs> <laughs> um... Why why am I struggling with this? I feel like Because there were so many names. <laughs> there were a lot of names. I'm I'm not going to get it. I'm there's no way. No. Al Taliaferro. I Michael, if you told me that was the first time you've told me that name tonight, I would believe you. 
Anyway, he was born in 1905. Initially, he was hired by Walt Disney in 1931 as an animator. Later transferred to the comic strip department, he first lettered the Mickey Mouse strips from March 1931 to July 1932. He then drew the Bucky Bug comics, as well as Silly Symphony pages from 1932 to 1939. And amongst his Silly Symphony adaptations was The Red Little Hen, the debut of Donald Duck. Whilst working on the Donald Duck strips, he also created Donald's nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Talia Farrow created the Donald Duck pantheon and established the elements upon which Carl Barks and other Disney artists would draw. Until Barks began creating original stories for comic books, Talia Farrow's work offered the definitive portrait of Donald Duck. Charles Alfred Talia Farrow was posthumously honored as a Disney legend in 2003. Okay, so we have him partially to thank for today's episode. <laughs> I, I went back through the script real fast while you were reading the blurb, just to, just to double check here. And you said his name one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, <laughs> I think six times. So yeah. shame on me. Well. It was hard because I said Carl Barks a lot too. You did, it, and I, I, I wasn't going to get tripped up, but gosh, wow, yeah. okay. tough one, tough one. Okay, February fourth, on February fourth, nineteen ninety nine, Pixar Animation Studios announced that it has developed a proprietary laser recording system for converting digital computer data into images on motion picture film stock with unprecedented quality. The new system was successfully tested on the 1998 animated hit A Bug's Life and will be used to produce Pixar's future animated series features, including Toy Story 2. What is the name of this system? Well, it sounds neato, but I don't know what it is. You're going to love it, considering a... a the name considering a series that's running on Disney Plus right now. Pixar Vision. How inspiring. I know. <laughs> um, February 5th. This Imagineer artist and Disney legend passed away on February 5th, 2004, at the age of 95 in Burbank, California. An employee of the Walt Disney Company for more than 60 years, he began as story artist in 1939. He made his way through the animation department, doing everything, including backgrounds, layout, and art direction, and even effects animation and special effects. Walt Disney respected him as one of the studio's most gifted artists and teamed him with Salvador Dali on the animated short Destino. He won a special effects Oscar for his work in the 1955 film 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea before moving to Wed Enterprises to spend the rest of his career helping to design Disney theme parks all over the world. He was also the official corporate portrait artist for Mickey Mouse. What is his name? I believe this is the wildly talented John Hench. Yes. I love his artwork. So do I. Yeah. Yeah. There was, um, I think there was one that someone posted. I don't know it was Tom Morris or somebody posted how, um, you know, they were going to try to, you know, the old Viewliner that we've talked about, Disneyland, that was um, ran for a year or so before the, the monorail was yeah. built. You know, it was designed by Bob Kerr. And how there was a version, there was a, a Viewliner version of the monorail that John Hench took a stab at designing. 
And uh, thank goodness uh, Bob Gurr came along and designed <laughs> his first monorail. But it was an interesting concept. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, uh, of course, if you <laughs> ever are able to see and track down a copy of Designing Disney, uh, definitely do so. It's been... I know it's been a while since I looked, but the last time I, I looked at it, it was at least over like a hundred dollars now. Oh, really? Sales sites, yeah. It's it's one of those books where I, I don't understand why it's it hasn't been re-released any time lately. Because I know I've had my copy now over ten years, and and the concepts inside of it aren't anything that like you know it, time has only solidified what john hench wrote about in it so Mm -hmm. i don't i feel like it's something that they could bring back out every now and then but you know uh, why would disney do that when they could release a bunch of cheap crap that's gonna head to the outlets any day (laughs) oh yes i i think i saw a twitter posting about that i'm I'm getting (laughs) i'm going through a phase right now where i'm like i'm really bitter that disney underproduces the stuff that people actually want and then they overproduce junk that will ultimately uh, lead to probably dumpsters and, and landfills being filled up everywhere because no one ever needed them. I th- I thought you got those his and hers non-tippable Mickey and Minnie canteens already. No. No. <laughs> uh, it's... Uh, like I, I, every time I go spring cleaning here, which is like every other week, I just look at stuff and I'm like, it's better off in my closet than it is in a landfill somewhere. So I'll just keep it there for now until I find someone who will appreciate it more. <laughs> oh, oh uh, yes, it would be nice if they reprinted that book. Yes. It's a great book. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> what a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> February 6th. Since 1987, the Walt Disney Company has been running the famous I'm Going to Disney World and I'm Going to Disneyland television advertising campaign after the Super Bowl. What is noteworthy about this ad for Super Bowl 34 on February 6th, 2005? Hmm. I'm not I'm not even positive about it. I don't even remember who was in the Super Bowl that year. I know the Steelers won the next year, but... New England Patriots and the Philadelphia Eagles. Hmm. I'm not going to lie. I don't even think I watched that game, so I'm going to let you tell me. The campaign does not take place at Super Bowl 34 for the first time since it started at Super Bowl 20 in 1987. Instead, Disney runs an ad several times during the game showing several players from both teams practicing the catchphrase. Mm. And the New England Patriots defeat the Philadelphia Eagles 24-21. to How clever. <laughs> How not surprising. <laughs> All right, not bad this week. Yeah, okay. Okay, well, there's, it seems like Disneyland, uh, well, news, and, and this week, Disneyland and Magic Kingdom news just sort of keeps on chugging out these last few weeks. But I, I know you talked about it in our Walt Disney World show this week, but the Jungle Cruise getting reimagined. Yeah, yeah, big so news. I, 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 I hope we're getting more diverse cannibals. You know, I feel like that's probably the last thing that we're actually going to get from it. But uh, it's—I I, I did speak about it 
on the Disney World show, so I, I'll let you spend more time uh, sharing any thoughts on it. For me, it's uh, it's just because I do invest so much of my time looking at, at tiki mugs and tiki culture that I have been aware for a while of how terrible some of the representation is and with it. So I'm, you know, it's going to be weird to ride the jungle cruise and it's weird to still have stuff like Trader Sam's, uh, that will be in existence after they probably remove Trader Sam from the attractions. Um, so it's weird to continue on the namesake for something that, that, you know, does have a, a bad background to it, but, uh, ultimately, you know, I, it, I, I would hate, even if it only affects one little kid going on that ride and says, why is someone who looks like me looking like this, doing these things? And like, it doesn't, and they don't, they don't understand it and they feel bad about it. If it just makes one person happy, even then, you know what, let's, let's try to make the world a little bit more better mm-hmm. rather than bickering and arguing and com- complaining about who killed who and such if you don't get that that's a line from monty python in the holy grail they they could they could easily make trader sam to be a trader yes like you know have a trading post and you know and and still keep the character but make them a little different which is sort of more what the two trader sams at disneyland and disney world are exactly world are so i think that 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 could be a, a an easy fix kind of thing and um, so hopefully they'll do something like that rather than just wiping out the character. And you, and you you alluded to this, or you said this on the Walt Disney World show, is um, the tiki culture is so d- disattached from the oceanic people's culture. Yes. Because it really is a 1950s creation that's taken on a life of its own and really has zero to do these days with that culture I, i've always seen it as a 50s kitschy kind of thing exactly well and that's so. a lot of people just straight up call it tiki kitsch and mm-hmm. they leave it at that because that's what it is it's but it then like i feel like maybe that's because back then that's what it was and now now there are more people saying well yeah you did kind of take our culture and just change it and and that's not okay. I don't know if anyone out there is even doing it. It's something that I clearly don't see. A lot of the conversations I read about it is more people who do embrace tiki culture and like it and say, yeah, some of the stuff we do and and show is in, in the bars and other culture that we produce with it, it probably is a little bit uh, not okay. And it seems like a lot of people within it are the ones who are necessarily being vocal about it, not necessarily other cultures outside of it. But then again, that's, you know, I only know what I read. If I'm missing the other articles, then I'm, that's, that's my fault that I'm not researching enough with it. But uh, we're all, we're all people. We're trying to, we're, we're trying to learn and always be better. So eventually this stuff comes across our plates. And in this case, Disney's, opening up the conversation and so i'm you know i'm i'm always happy to learn more never too old to learn yeah no i agree i agree so i um yeah and i don't know that much about tiki culture but i I would hate for them just to say it's gone (laughs) so um you know but um but if they need to make adjustments to it 
I'm fine with yeah. that. Yeah. But in terms of the Jungle Cruise itself, I'm I'm not sure how excited I I mean I the making changes and all that don't bother me as long as they don't try to fit Disney characters into it. Um but uh but um I I'm not sure how I feel if it's if it, I I'm not sure if is this going to be a linear story rather than just more one where you're going through the jungles and what are we going to discover around this next bend, you know, kind of feel that it had. And, you know, it, and um, I'm, I'm not sure I'm excited to have it as a linear story. So we'll see what they do. Yeah, it's, I mean, the jury is still out on whether or not the storyline works completely. That's, and I think that's a, that's a discussion that, that, is worth having with it is like i feel like maybe they could have altered some of the the problems with the attraction and altered it and didn't have to really start throwing around uh, the story with it because the one thing that i don't like sometimes with disney and their stories is that on paper it makes sense and then it doesn't really it doesn't really translate then into the actual attractions and, and what they built. So it's mm-hmm. it's great that they want to be story forward first. Like that's I, I think that is a way to definitely make make your worlds more immersive and and uh, a lot a lot more realistic. But at the same time, you have to be all in and really create a good story that that makes it fit. And as much as I I love Galaxy's Edge. That is a perfect example of what happens when you don't commit to the story, and yeah, I you know if it's it's one I know it's one thing basing it on an attraction versus an entire land, but uh, that's a land that you had the backing of Lucasfilm helping out create the story, and then just dropping the ball in so many places. So I hope that I hope that they're not over complicating this attraction. Me too. Yeah, I do too. And I, I think one of the reports said that they were going back and looking at some of Mark Davis's sketches for it. So I'm hoping they're going to include some scenes, maybe that you know didn't that, that they didn't use from Mark Davis, and that would be nice. Yeah, That'd be a it, nice treat. It seems like that that is going to happen based on the mm-hmm. little video. So hopefully, you know their their budget for this project uh, doesn't doesn't fall apart and they're able to to not just change it up but also then add to it and and you know really really help make the the jungle cruise flourish a bit more because as as much as I do love the attraction and I love I love just you know everything from the cue and the cue music to then the feeling when you're on the boat and the skipper's jokes you know it's as much as I love it I can also admit like I can understand why people hate it because it is, it is just, it's kind of, it's kind of just getting old and I don't, I don't ever want to see it go. So whatever they can do to make it, you know, more, more updated, more fresh, more inclusive than, you know what, give it a shot. It's Mm -hmm. uh, a lot worse can go wrong. (laughs) I'm telling you though, I will never put my foot in a boat if they put a Muppet anywhere 
in that cruise. Well, that's the one thing that will <laughs> fix Jungle Cruise entirely. That's the one thing that could fix every single attraction is just throw some Muppets in there. And uh, it's attraction fixed. <laughs> so I will, I will pick it. I will do something. So um, anyway. All righty. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what they do. I do like the one scene they showed of the chimpanzees and the sunken um sunken boat that looks really funny <laughs> i was i hope it's well animated yeah i was doing a live stream when the news came out about that and so i saw like the notification pop up on my phone because it tells me anytime disney parks tweets something out and i got it on my watch too but i couldn't i couldn't open the story up so i had to have people explain to me and all they they were kept writing right away like uh monkeys take over your boat and what is what is happening like i don't understand anything that this is supposed to be so uh once once i got to see the artwork and understand it a little bit more i i definitely had a little bit more appreciation to it but yeah that's, wait a minute wait a minute is is the planet of the apes series a 20th century fox vehicle oh, yeah it, oh my gosh that's that no. is the next that's the next collaboration <laughs> that we need so uh, That'll be it'll be the monkeys from those films will take over the boat. <laughs> I, I'd be okay with that. <laughs> I'd be okay if they become our skipper, actually. Let's just really throw it for a loop. Oh, anyway. All right. Well, we've given them a whole lot of ideas with which they can ruin the attraction. <laughs> I've, got, I've got plenty and, more. <laughs> Muppets and intelligent um, apes. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Disney Plus, I was looking what's coming in February. There's a few things, still not a lot of classic stuff. Um, but they have Marvel's um, Behind the Mask, uh, which sounds like it's a whole lot better than Marvel's Legends. It sounds like this is going to be way more in-depth, the people that um, create the films. I'll, I'll give it an episode, and if it I doesn't will too. click with me, then I will not watch anymore because I'm stubborn. Yeah, they they have another series um, of um, well, another season of Inside Pixar Portraits. I don't think I watched the first season of Inside a, Pixar. Yeah. Oh, it was. It was I don't really remember good. if I did. So yeah. I have to go back and check. They didn't give it a lot of, um, at least in my opinion, they didn't give it enough press. But it was it was a nice, uh, real tight tight short series on pixar so uh, i think each episode was maybe about 10 to 20 minutes or that's what it kind of felt like and you know just just different looks inside the company real quick and uh just really really well done so i i hope they just continue adding to it as as much as they can yeah and then of course you already talked about how excited we are about the muppet show the original muppet show coming um then another myth the frozen tale she's like a little animated short from that's inspired by um, Frozen 2. Yeah, yeah, I, I saw that. I, I know nothing about it, but I look forward to it. It seems like it's like the mythology of Arendelle or something. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. So, And then a couple of things that I hope they start doing more of, and that's showing, uh, showing things from the international parks. Disney Illuminations Fireworks Show from Disneyland Paris. And yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I, and hopefully, sorry, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. You go ahead first. No, no I'm just <laughs> hoping they, that they had all their cameras all lined up and it were 
getting a really good look at this. Yeah, that's so. my my thing too. I'm like, I will. I I'm glad that they're putting it out there because I have to assume it's going to be at least like, you know, it, it's always going to be HD quality. So I'm hoping that it's like it's a really really good shot. I just, you know, I don't always trust a lot of times when uh, Disney shows off their fireworks shows but that's usually domestically i don't like how they do their live streams for it i remember at the start of uh quarantine back in in march of 2020 i remember when um when tokyo showed their video of phantasmic and like if if they're on the quality of like how that video was done then i'm give me give me different videos from all the international parks but uh at the very least if you don't like how uh the Disney Illuminations from Disneyland Paris looks on Disney Plus. You can always go to youtube.com slash WDW info and watch the version of it that I shot while I was there, mm-hmm. which is That's uh, right. which I have watched. It's a, yeah, it's a good view. Times. It's a good mm-hmm. view. Well, you know, Tokyo, yeah, yeah, you know, it's hard for them to hold a camera in one hand and a Duffy bear in the other. <laughs> That's why I was happy when they started releasing on YouTube a lot of their. Um, a lot of their their professionally shot stuff and i know there there's one more from shanghai i'm sure you were going to mention too yes the shanghai disney resort grand opening gala Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so looking forward to that i did watch that and i don't remember being overly impressed with it when i watched it it wasn't that was a long time ago Yeah, yeah it's i actually i still have this on my dvr uh, believe it or not, but um, it, it wasn't amazing. But I'm glad to, uh, I'm glad I can delete it off my DVR now. So <laughs> that's that's most important, at least for me. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, there, there's a lot of like little interesting things though on Disney Plus too. Like I, I hope it's like the list that I looked at. It was from a what's on DisneyPlus.com where I looked at it, and like they had. Um, one shorts coming on called Mickey Go Local, and apparently it's a it's shorts that were made for Disney Channel Asia, which like to me that I saw that that looks good. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to see how how he's he's placed in in other cultures and and shown off in other cultures. One of the one of the other things that made me laugh is that of course with the Fox acquisition you get a lot of different movies and I think it's hilarious that the Book of Life is going to be added to um to Disney Plus in February as well too and that was the uh that was the Fox animation take on uh the Day of the Dead and mm-hmm. yeah, so watch came, it with Coco yeah it's it's a good back to back and honestly it's a good it's actually a good movie um i i really enjoyed it when i watched it i didn't think i would because we knew that pixar was developing a day of the dead movie but book of life beat it by by a couple years i feel like it was and uh they're they're both good coco's way better but uh it's it, you will now have that to do a, a nice a nice back to back and I think the thing I'm seeing more than anything about, though, upcoming is the new Disney Plus original movie, Flora and Ulysses. So I, That is not on my list. <laughs> I'm not going to watch it, but I feel like everything I listen to that's, like, official Disney is is constantly talking about it. So, um, it's it, it, they definitely want it out there. So, maybe, maybe it will be good, or maybe it will be another disney plus original movie so because 
they haven't all been great. Like, what was the one with Josh Gad over the summer that he was even making fun of himself? I don't remember. It was the. It was supposed to be in theaters, and it just based on a book, and then they moved it to Disney Plus, and then it just it bombed. I can't remember the name of it. I never ended he, up watching it. He wasn't in Mulan. <laughs> no, as um, uh, Artemis Fowl. Oh, that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I didn't watch that. Yeah, and even and Josh Gad was on Twitter making fun of it. So like, uh, that's it's, sad. It's, Always, always a new level of low when when one of the stars yeah. of the movie is openly mocking it on social media. Uh, well, he was being openly mocked for being a poor man's Hagrid on that <laughs> one. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, he was probably trying to save face. Yeah, and 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 then of course more episodes of Wandavision. I am mm-hmm. looking forward to. Me too. It has, it has um, inspired me to go back and start rewatching all the Avengers films, the whole MCU thing, because I realized I need to know more (laughs) about, because I know there's references, there's like, I'd forgotten, I I can't give too much away, but the reference to the Scarlet Witch is, you know, Wanda's brother. I had totally forgotten that character. And, and, and I know they're also pulling from the comic books and, and all of that, but it's interesting how, you know, okay, what is this a metaphor for, you know, the cutting through the wall? Is it because they're starting to cut through the facade of the, you know, I mean, there's oh, yeah. just all kinds of stuff. No, it's, and then, it's deep. It's deep. Yeah, so I, I'm looking forward to it, you know, and, uh, you know, who's real, who's not, you know, and how does, how did one get ejected? <laughs> so, the, clearly that's a real person. So, how did that happen? So anyway, I'm looking forward to having more of this story, um, you know, exposed. Oh yeah, no, I am. I'm right there with you, and I. It probably would be good for me to go back and and do that a little bit more too. I know that's that's part of why they wanted the Marvel Legends to help to help small reminders, not necessarily the deep details, but uh, some of the little bit of stuff. But you know, like I, I will be. I'll, completely honest like when they brought up uh when they brought up uh pietro i like i had i didn't forget about him but like when she slipped back in the accent for a second there i was like i i actually forgot about the accent i know it gets made fun of every now and then because she just completely dropped it after ultron but uh yeah it's just a bunch of little stuff so it's uh it You'll have to let me know by the end of it all if it truly did enhance the entire show more by by keeping the MCU fresh in your mind. Yeah, yeah, but I, I, whatever it does, it's very clever. It's fun to watch. So, anyway, well, I referred to several books, articles, and websites during my research for this episode, including Walt Disney's Donald Duck, 50 Happy Years of Frustration by Justin Knowles, um, the the Disney Wiki on Donald Duck, A Duckburg Family by Gary Cruz, and then Wikipedia is a tremendous help. They have pages on Donald Duck, The Duck Family, the Disney version. I guess there's other versions. They had to put Disney in <laughs> quotations. Um, Ludwig von Drake, Clan McDuck, and Scrooge McDuck. Um, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on the different shows on the Dis Unplugged Podcast Network and then always on 
Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. And then you can email me, Craig, at WDWinfo.com. What about you, Michael? You can email me at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling, dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling, the Diz. And you can connect with both me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyUnplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother, Roy. (laughs) 